Well, the subject that we're looking at this evening is the issue of, does God care who I sleep with? Does God care uh, what I watch? Uh, And it's one of those issues that that believers have been wrestling with uh, since time began. If you go back to the Old Testament, they're wrestling with issues of polygamy. They're wrestling with issues of shrine prostitutes. Uh, The New Testament, uh, there's uh, adultery and incest within the church. Throughout history, there have been uh, conversations, debates, uh, disagreements on how to tackle this issue of sex. But I don't think there's been any point in history uh, where, as Christians, we felt very comfortable doing that. It is the sort of subject that sometimes makes us want to squirm in our seats. Uh, And so before we go any further, I want to just be really, hopefully, reassuring uh, and yet open and honest with you. Reassuring in the sense that I'm not going to ask you to share anything that you're uncomfortable with this evening. Uh, Reassuring that I'm not about to take you on a guilt trip. Uh, Whatever your past, whatever your presence, uh, we're not here to condemn you. Uh, Reassuring in the sense that I'm standing before you, yes, as a a biblical counsellor, as a a trainer who works for uh, for Biblical Counselling UK, someone that's written in the area of purity, but I'm not standing before you as someone that always gets it right. I am someone that messes up just as much as anybody else, and I mess up in this area too. But I'm also here as someone to say, God has got a journey for us to go on. He's got something beautiful for us to head towards. And so if you will, let's join those many thousands, millions of believers who in the past have wrestled with this kind of topic and wrestle with it a bit tonight. But as well as offering some words of reassurance, it's probably worth uh, acknowledging that we're all going to be in very different places. Uh, There's different ages and stages, there are different genders uh, in this room, uh, but we'll all have had very different pasts as well. I don't know what your upbringing was like and uh, the kind of conversations you had when you were uh, very young, uh, but we will have a range of experiences in this room. Some people would have grown up in Christian families where where boundaries were very clearly set. Uh, Others would have grown up in settings where there was much more uh, liberty in how you expressed sex and sexuality. Some of us here will be uh, married and happily married. Uh, Some of us here will be married but struggling. Some of us here will be contentedly single. Uh, I was saying to, to Chris on the way in that my strap line at trainings and conferences now is single, in my 50s, live alone with my cat, not ashamed. It's, it's where I'm at. But if you were to rewind history, you would have found a Helen that was uncontentedly single. Uh, I desperately wanted to be in a relationship uh, at that time. I don't know you uh, very well at all. I've I've had a few chats uh, with a few of you and uh, have had the delight of meeting uh, people that are incredibly wise, incredibly experienced, uh, have incredibly uh, long walking sticks with which to poke speakers if they get out of control. Um, uh, But um, people here, people watching online, there may may be a range of orientations, uh, from heterosexual to homosexual to bisexual uh, and many of the other Uh, labels that people choose to to use of themselves. There there may be differences in our biology. For some of us, actually, sex may feel quite irrelevant. Our our bodies are just not particularly interested. Uh, For others of us, it's uh, something that dominates our thoughts. Um, And yet still, some of us will have had painful experiences. My my heart was lightened. I I didn't spot who prayed the prayer. 
uh, before uh, the start of this uh, time together uh, when we had a little gathering to pray. But one lovely uh, brother was praying for those who have been abused. And and in a grouping this size and, and thinking about who might be watching online as well, it's entirely possible that there are people here carrying great pain, huge pain from things that should never have been done to them in the past. And of course, we're going to be in different places with our relationship with God. I'm sure uh, many of us will know the joy and delight of wanting to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Whatever his word says, uh, we want to be there, nothing more than obedience and, and being loving and thankful towards our Lord Jesus. You know, that, that's our joy and our delight. And others of us, if you are a normal church, and I think you are, others of us will be sitting here going, you know what, I don't care what God wants. This is my life, and I am going to live it my way. I'm not going to ask you to self-identify which ones of those categories you might be in, but you might want to have a a little think about where you're at, because the place you're in now is really going to impact how you receive and engage with where we're going next. But of course, it's not just us. We are human beings in a culture Uh, And even as as Christians, sometimes we find the topic of sex difficult to wrestle with. Our culture is talking about it all the time. There is a sense in which our culture moulds us, even if we don't particularly want it to. We are influenced by the words that come at us, the thoughts that surround us. Maybe you've had this experience too. Uh, You've thought about a television programme or a song that you've heard, and you've thought, oh my goodness me, those words, they're terrible. Uh, but, but it keeps coming at you time and time and time again. And, and after a little while, it doesn't feel quite so terrible anymore. It's not that it's stopped being wrong, but actually it's stopped being shocking. We're familiar with it. And, and what we once identified as very far away from what God wants, now it's sort of a little bit more in our psyche, a little bit more who what we think and feel. So it's worth looking at what messages our culture is giving us on this subject day by day. We live in a culture that is desperately individualistic. I don't know if you go into social media. I go on social media way too much. I'm going to have to do a few talks on social media. That will knock me into touch, I think. Um, But you go into social media and you see these memes and these pictures going, follow your dreams. Don't let anyone tell you who you should be. Define yourself. If anyone gets in your way, cut them out of your life and just go for it. What matters is who you are. Be true to yourself. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should be clones of each other. But that the rank individualism in our culture means that we find it so easy to assume that if we want something, then that must be good. Or at least good enough for us. We get so tempted to think, if if I feel that's who I am, if that's what I want, if that's my desire and my drive, then clearly that should be where I go. That message comes at us time and time again. And alongside with that, we've tended to reject what sociologists would call the meta-narratives, the the big stories. So the the big story of Christianity or, or the big story of England gets kind of lost between the little story of... Helen in southwest London. We, we don't mind what people in authority say. In fact, as a culture, we, we, we quickly reject what those in authority say. And people quickly reject what God has to say so often without really grappling uh, with what he has said. 
Linked with that, we are incredibly feelings-driven. Not all human beings, of course, but there can be a tendency. If we really love something, then it, it can't be wrong, can it? All those cheesy lines from the Hollywood films that I grew up with. But, but he completes me. But he's the one. Maybe you've heard people uh, say things like my friends have said, yeah, it was right to be with that person for a while, but, but they were the person for me to be with the last decade. Now I feel I'm led to be with someone else. It's not that it's objectively uh, been analysed. It's not that it's necessarily good. It's certainly not free from pain, but the feelings of led. I want to be with this person. I want this experience. I want to know what this feels like. And we are absolutely rubbish at waiting. We are the instant Google generation. If, if someone uses a, a word we don't understand, those of us that have got smartphones will whip them out and we will instantly search. We want to know now. And why would you wait? I mean, you can get everything now. Uh, whether you're, you're looking for uh, Uber drivers to, to bring you your uh, takeaway of choice within 20 minutes, or you're looking for information within 20 seconds, or you want uh, a response from your text message uh, within a couple of minutes. Do you remember the days? Not all of you will. But do you remember the days when you wrote a letter and you knew it would take four days to get there and probably four days for someone to reply to it and then four days for it to come back to you? How did we not have a nervous breakdown? <laughs> but now we're a generation. We're a culture that wants it now. We want the answer now. We want the information now. We want the experience now. Waiting doesn't really come easily at all. And all too often, we're people that want to see our identity in the intimacy. Um, for many years, uh, biology was male or, or female. Uh, of course, uh, uh, a group of people for whom that wasn't clear-cut, so that's always been the case, but there were basically two choices. But now there is a, a sense of self-identification of what I feel like, how I want to express myself. You can choose your pronouns, he, she, them, they. Uh, on Twitter, you will see people articulating what kind of pronouns they want to be used, uh, what to have used of them. Uh, and people will say, well, yes, I, I am straight, or, or I am gay. That is who I am. It, it's the thing that defines them. It's not part of them, or what they do, or, or what they choose. It is them. And that's been a shift in our culture. Of course, there have always been people of, of, of different sexual orientations. That's nothing new. But this sense of, this is who I am, it's my core identity, that's quite a 21st century thing. And when it comes to topics like sex, there is this push and pull about whether our culture likes difference or, or doesn't like difference. On, on one sense, our, our culture <clears throat> excuse me, really embraces difference. You can define yourself any way you like. You can describe yourself any way you like. If, as long as it's consensual, you can sleep with anyone you like, our culture would say. There is a, a huge welcoming of difference. Uh, unless, of course, what you're saying is seen as restrictive seen in some way as clipping people's wings, wanting to define them in other ways. And then difference is not welcomed at that point, which is why the Christian message is so often pushed away. Do you recognise some of those things in the culture around you? 
those influences are going to be impacting us right here and now. And, and we can't switch the culture bit of our brain off. We can't suddenly... Uh, I was talking about the Matrix film uh, with uh, uh, friends the other day. If you've watched the Matrix film where you can upload facts to your brain, it's fantastic. Oh, so wish that were true. Um, but you can't just take that chip out. You can't, you can't lose that culture bit. We are enculturated beings. And so as we go on this journey, uh, we want to be deeply aware that we are impacted by what we're hearing on the media, the news, on social media, in the books that we read, in the conversations we have. And so with that in mind, and just to get you talking, because if we don't get you talking now, when we get to the slightly more uh, tougher stuff later, you're not going to talk at all. Let, let's just have a, a, a little bit of a chat around the table. With all that in mind, what do you think I'm going to say tonight? <laughs> okay, let's uh, come back together again. That one was just a conversation starter. We've got some more meat to, to, to come. <laughs> Well, what is God saying to us uh, in the middle of this confusing mess? Uh, when it comes to what's going on in our own lives, when it comes to what's going on in our culture, what is God calling us to? And the first thing is this. We are made in God's image. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, uh, in, he made them in his image, male and female, he made them. What I'm looking out on is a bunch of beautiful people. Now, some of you have just recoiled slightly at that. What I'm not saying is all of us would make the front cover of Vogue. I, I'm well aware that I will never do that. Uh, some of you won't make that either. Sorry if that's a desperately um, shocking thing for me to say. But what I'm saying in our heart, in who we are deep down, we are beautiful because we are made to be little reflections of God. Now, we're not made to be God. Uh, we don't get to rule. We don't get to decide. We don't get to be the person that defines right from wrong. That was what went wrong in Genesis 3 when people try to take the role of God. But we are meant to be little mirror images, little reflections of God. Broken images, but yet images. Uh, and that means that we are people who can relate, who can rule, who can be creative. Uh, and the aspect we're going to look at most, of course, this evening is that ability to relate. We have been made, we, we follow a God who is Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is an, a relational God. And he is a relational God who wants to relate to the people that he has made, to relate to the creation that he brought about. He is deeply relational, and that, that relationship is a relationship of love. It's not that just God is loving. The Bible tells us that God is love. And therefore, to, to be in the image of God is to, to relate in the kind of ways that God relates. We are designed to be people who reflect him in all of his attributes, in his holiness, in his generosity, in his wisdom. We'll always be under his rule, but we're meant to be little pictures. And that's an exciting thing he's calling us to. It's actually impossible to be a purposeless human being if you're a Christian. 
Uh, it's completely impossible. I mean, not only do we have uh, this uh, wonderful role of, of telling people about Jesus and his salvation plan, just by being who we are, we get to be little visual signposts of what God is like. And that is our calling, each and every one of us, to be like God. And that means very specifically in Ephesians 1, which is one of my favourite passages of the Bible, that we hear that one of the reasons God chose us was to be holy. Now, it it might be that um, predestination is beyond our remit for this evening. I can highly recommend chatting to Chris if you've got any questions about predestination. I'm sure he understands it perfectly. Um, But Ephesians 1 tells us that before the beginning of time, We were on God's minds. He was actively choosing us to come into his family, actively choosing us to be be saved by Christ uh, and to be with him for eternity. Uh, But part of the purpose of that was he chose us to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, to be like God, which we saw in the image bit, but unlike the world. That's what holiness means, to to be set apart for something special. Uh, back in uh, the day when uh, Jesus was round, there were, there were different kind of cups, different kind of pottery. Uh, some had really noble purposes, and some were the kind of stick in the fat and then throw them away kind of purposes. We're, we're not supposed to be the kind of pots that you stick in the junk and then throw away. As human beings, our lives, our bodies are supposed to be the kind of pots where the precious stuff goes where the stuff that you want to keep away from the dirt and the mess goes. Our lives are set apart for something extraordinarily special. And that means how we use our our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our our minds, uh, every part of our body. Is that set apart for Christ? Set apart for something holy, something beautiful? And it's not that just God was thinking about that before uh, the beginning of time. Actually, when we were saved, the actual act of saving was to make us holy. You know, we, some of you will have precise moments where you became a Christian. For me, July the 1st, 1989, about nine o'clock at night in southwest London. I know the date and the time. Others of you won't, and that's okay. Uh, that's not the bit that you need uh, to get into to heaven. But all of us who have been saved have been saved for a purpose, to be like Christ. You see, he didn't save us uh, just to be a a social club. Uh, He didn't even just save us to be a a mission party. Uh, He certainly didn't save us so we could uh, just sit in a church hall and sing nice hymns and listen to speakers from time to time. I mean, the church is a beautiful thing, don't get me wrong, but he's saving us to be holy, to to be built ever more into holiness. And... When we became Christians, some of us will have been in very different places. Some of us will have been living a life that was consistent with Christ uh, because we'd always known his teachings, even if we hadn't made a a personal commitment. Some of us, like me, will have come from a a teenager, an early 20s, which were very far from Christ. And our early years were maybe very different. Uh, And obviously, there can be crossover there too. But wherever our starting point when we were saved... The trajectory, the journey, is one of increasing holiness. He wants us to be more and more pure, refined, beautiful, golden, glorious. And to go on that journey, step by step by step, 
until one day when he calls us home or he returns, we'll be utterly perfect. So the pursuit of holiness now isn't boring or, or just duty. It's, it's what we were saved for. This, this is part of the deal. This is what it is to be Christian, to, to be holy, to be washed clean, and, and then to be increasingly Christ-like and holy until that day when there is no dirt left at all. Holiness is our call. It's our privilege. And fourthly, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He calls us to live differently to the world around, to be a light shining in a dark world. And that means that if, as Christians, we are thinking about sex in the same way as our non-Christian friends and family are, that should be a warning light to us. Because at its very core, God is calling us to be distinctive. He's calling us to be different. He's calling us to shine so brightly that people can't help but look at us and go, wow, there is something different about them. And that difference is alluring. I don't know if you've ever experienced a being in darkness. Uh, actual total darkness is, is, is terrifying. Um, I, I haven't experienced it much, but I, I've done a little bit of teaching in, in rural Africa. And there are, of course, no electricity there. Uh, and you go out uh, at night and it can be pitch black. You literally cannot see the hand in front of your face. That is, that is where most of the world is living in that kind of darkness. Uh, And our role is to shine beautifully, wonderfully, alluringly, so others can see the beauty of Christ. And that means in this area, as indeed with all areas, people from a non-Christian background might well look at us and go, well, it might be beautiful, and it's certainly clear, but it feels a bit odd, because it's not what I'm used to, it's not what I'm growing up with. God calls us to be like him. He calls us to be holy. And he calls us to be different. Well, there are some some basic principles. But what does that actually look like uh, when it comes to the area of sex that we're talking about this evening? It means that we're created for commitment. God is a God of covenant. I'm sure in this church you will have been through these passages in, in, in recent years at least. You know, you, you'll remember the covenant made with Abraham for him to bless Abraham with, with many descendants, to give him a land and, and through them to, to bless the whole world. You know, there's, there's, a, there's the covenant made with Noah. Um, there's uh, the covenant made right back in the Garden of Eden. There's a covenant made with, with David. There's all those promises that we get through the prophets that point back to that covenant. He's a promise-making God. And a God who is utterly committed to those he's made. And therefore, what it means to be in his image, in part, is for us to reflect that promise and covenant-making attitude that he has in our relationships. He has an unbreakable promise with his chosen people. And he wants us to have unbreakable promises with the people that we are committed to. Now, what does that look like? Well, back in uh, Genesis, uh, and Genesis 2, and verses uh, 18 to 25, we see the kind of the mandate for marriage. Uh, and what that is, is that uh, the man and the woman uh, leaving uh, their parents and, and joining together. 
two separate people from two separate married, um, families coming together in a, an absolute unbreakable unity. Now, there's some beautiful things about that. that. There is real security in that. There is real intimacy in that. There is real love in that. Uh, but it's worth noting also there's real difference in that as well. It's a man and a woman coming together to be united. Two complementary people. Not two people the same, but two different. Is that important? Well, that promise was made before the fall. That, that mandate was given, sorry, before the fall. That's before it all went wrong. This is God's perfect design for the world. For a man and a woman to come together. Now, that's not a popular thing to say in 21st century Britain. And I certainly uh, don't want to give any credence to some of the hate and the prejudice against LBGTQI people that's out there. There is no grounds for hating uh, people on the grounds of their sexual orientation. But the biblical mandate is two people who are different coming together, not two people who are the same. And we see that worked out in other passages later in the Bible as well. Difference in love, for security, for joy, and for potentially, of course, uh, for the possibility uh, of childbearing. Before uh, the modern technological advances in reproductive uh, technology, of course, it had to be a man and a woman coming together uh, to make children. We now live in an era where uh, there are techniques uh, that can be used, uh, artificial insemination and other things. But up until this point of history, it's had to be a man and a woman that can come together for childbearing. There are no other options. Of course, God doesn't always bless married couples with children. And I know how heartbreaking it can be uh, when that doesn't happen. But that is one of the possibilities we have. So we're created for commitment uh, to to each other. A a lifelong commitment. Uh, There are very few reasons for breaking the marriage covenant. It is worth mentioning that if someone is abandoned or or if someone commits adultery or or if there is abuse, then there is no biblical mandate to stay in that marriage. But normally, normally, we're created for commitment, unbreakable bonds between man and wife, faithful to the core because God is faithful to the core. And we know beyond any shadow of doubt that God has designed that for our good. Even though it's hard, and I know that there will be people here reeling from the pain of when it went wrong. It is for our good. But of course there are plenty of people around, like me, who have never experienced that intimacy and that commitment and that marriage covenant. Some of us will have been single throughout our lives. Others of us will be single now after uh, tragically painful circumstances of, of loss or equally tragic and potentially painful circumstances of divorce. I know that hurts. It hurts deeply. But now, as single people, we are still created for commitment. Commitment to the one and only Lord who wants our all. He calls that singleness a gift. Uh, And if I had a a penny for every time a single person had said to me, yeah, great, thank you, but what's the returns policy so I can actually get something I want, I would probably be a a rich person right now. 
But God doesn't give bad gifts. He, he, he gives gifts that don't feel convenient. He gives gifts that sometimes are very different to what we want. He gives gifts that sometimes make us sink to our knees in tears and say, why, Lord? I, I don't understand why. You know how much I want something else. But when he does give that gift, he gives that gift so that we can be set aside for him. To know intimacy with him. And, and to know that when that sexual drive that many single people will experience and they're not quite sure what to do with hits, he says, you know that longing that you have for another human being? You know that, that burning inside you that you have for another human being? That is just a tiny foretaste of, of the love and the passion I have for you. The way I desire you to be wholehearted for me. Clearly his love for us is not a sexual love. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. But a love that, that burns as an intense and, and wants a relationship with us deeply. We are created either for commitment, we are created for commitment either to God and another human being, or just to God. Well, I've just looked at the time, I'm talking way too much. So I'm going to skip that, and we're going to come back to talking in a minute, and let me just uh, go on with some slides. That means that as, as, as human beings, as Christians, we're called to flee impurity. It says, uh, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any other kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. And that's a beautiful verse, partly because it, it raises our, our eyes to a really high bar, saying, you know, God, he wants our all, he wants our best. But I love the fact that it also says, or oh, greed, just to remind us that sexual sin and sexual struggles are not like something worse than anything else. They just fit in the whole realm of human struggles. Uh, and I'm just going to very quickly do a case study on pornography because it's something that we don't talk a lot about in church, but it is a big issue for lots and lots of churches. 68% of young adult men uh, use porn at least once a week. 18, one in five uh, adult women uh, use porn at least once a week. Uh, 19% of 18 to 24 have sent a sext, a, a sexually explicit text. And now 56% of divorce cases involve pornography. It would be lovely if the church were immune, wouldn't it? It'd be lovely if you could look at those statistics and go, it's out there. It, it's not us. 64% of Christian men say they watch porn at least once a month. 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. I don't know exactly how many people are in your congregation. You can do the stats. If you're struggling, you're not alone. This is a big problem for us in churches. And as someone that counsels in this area, I know what it is to have that stream of people going, but I'm the only one in the church. And sometimes I have at least seven people from the same church coming up to me saying, I'm the only one in the church. It's an issue. And, and, and people use it. Pornography is not just about sex. It's about getting comfort. It's about experiencing stuff that we want to experience in real life, but we don't have the opportunity to do so. It's about wanting marriage, but not able to have marriage. So finding kind of fake relationships online. It's about 
control. But it's desperately, desperately painful. So again, just one minute on your table. Why do you think it's worthwhile fleeing porn? What does it do that damages our relationship with God, that damages our relationship with other people, that damages our view of ourself, that damages our relationship with the world around? As we've been talking about what's beautiful, let's, let's focus down on what's ugly as well. Why do we want to run away from things like that? Just one minute on your table, and I'm going to look at Sam to see if I've got wriggle room to keep going for a few more minutes. I've got a thumbs up. We're good. Okay, let's uh, come back together. I know that was an irritatingly short amount of time, uh, but let's uh, keep pressing on. So we've got this big vision of what God is calling us to. He's calling us to holiness. He's calling us to commitment. He's calling us to flee impurity. And we'll look at how uh, in just a little while. But finally, he is calling us to pursue purity. And that is not a boring word. Purity is not walking around in unfashionable clothes and kind of open-toe sandals in the middle of winter going, sex is bad and we mustn't talk about it. That's not what purity looks like. Sex, purity is not shunning sex. Purity is having a passion for Jesus in such a way that we want to use our bodies and hearts in ways that are pleasing to him. It, whether we are single, whether we are married, whether we are divorced, whether we are young, whether we are uh, old and grieving... The way we use our minds, the way we use our bodies matters. And we want to please Jesus because he adores us. Purity means actually using our bodies and our minds in ways that are good for people. So that means not buying into the lie of porn that it's innocuous and okay because so many people are trafficked, so many people are drugged, so many people are, are abused, so many people have been given a false idea of what sex is that has then transferred over into their marriage and their marriage has fallen apart. It matters. And it's not good for our relationships with each other. Just like the same as uh, sleeping around or adultery, it is not good. It breaks the covenant. It hurts people. Some of us here will know the pain of having been uh, rejected or, or someone betrayed us. It, following our dreams, or so, someone will say, can leave others utterly broken. And that's not okay for Christians. We want to use our bodies and our minds in, in ways that are good for the people around us. And lives that are wholeheartedly, increasingly moving towards the godly and away from the ungodly. Put to death, it says, what belongs to your earthly nature. I'll come back to that. So does God care what I watch or who I'm with deeply? Because he cares deeply for you. So what should we do? Three categories of three different people. If you're a parent here, and you are, or a grandparent, I should have had that in. If, you, if you're concerned about someone younger... Be people who are confident that Jesus' way is the best way for you and for your children. And be willing to pray about these things together and open scripture together. I've only touched on uh, some, some scripture this evening, uh, but the, I've got some uh, Bible verses around and you can have this PowerPoint slide. Uh, you can look at it and you can look up those passages as we go. Be role models in purity and repentance Nearly every child that watches porn 
or the vast majority of children that watch porn first watched it because they found it on their older brother or their father's laptop. Occasionally it was a friend's father or a friend's brother. But mostly, if it's accessible at home, your children will find it. How you act, how you treat people of the opposite gender matters to your children and they will pick up on what you do. Be passionate about engendering a Christ-centred identity in your children. They are not defined by how they feel. They are defined by being a child of the living God. That is who they are. The other things around them are real issues that they may struggle with, but it's not who they are. They are Christians. They are children of the one who loves them most. Be, be someone that's talking about the dangers of the world, not in a kind of run away from the world, it's terrifying kind of way, but in a kind of way like porn is out there, abuse is out there, sexting is out there. Let's just talk about it. Talking about it doesn't make it more likely to happen. I mean, think about teaching your child to cross the road. You don't wait for the speeding bus before you go, let's look at the Green Cross Code now. You're proactive. You know the danger's out there, so you give everything you can to make sure that they are prepared for that speeding bus when it comes. Talk to them. And be open to tough conversations. I mean, a lot of them are going to have questions about what they can and cannot do with their own body, or or what's beneficial at least, Uh, what they can and cannot do with people of the opposite gender, what they're watching online, what's happening in the latest uh, television programme they're watching, or Netflix. They have questions. Now, they won't always want to ask mum and dad. That's okay. That, That really useful other godly adult in their life might take some of these conversations. But be prepared to have them. And be brave enough to pursue gentle accountability. Uh, A couple of families I know uh, very wisely say, laptops only in areas where you can be casually observed. You don't don't take your laptop to your bedroom. I know in lockdown things get a bit blurred because we just had to find somewhere to do something. But that's just to be wise. Are you always happy for everyone to see the history on your phone? Great, let them see. And then you can see theirs too. Be open and honest and accountable. But not all of us here are parents or grandparents. Some of us will have a friend. Uh, And and when people have have messed up, when people have not lived God's way, the last thing on earth we want to do is come across as judgy. That's what people expect Christians to do. Just to go, no, that's awful, you sinner, you've got no place in the church. That's, That's not the message of grace. We can be people that talk about, you know, The the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the one who had had five husbands and was now living with another man. We can talk about Jesus' gentleness and tenderness with her, his call to be honest about what she'd done, but to come and follow him. We can take people to places like Psalm 51, which is where David, after his adultery, or should we call it abuse of of Bathsheba, uh, comes back in repentance and goes... God, I have messed up so badly. That was awful. I am so sorry. We can use those kinds of words. When, when people are really struggling to, to see what God is up to, we can take them to places like Mark 1 to 8 to show how, how sovereign God is. We can take them to other psalms to find comfort, help them keep a diary to work out when they're likely to, to go off the rails and do something that God would not like. We can remind them that change is possible by taking off their old self, renewing their minds, uh, and putting on their new self. That's, that's not about 
stopping doing everything impure, thinking happy thoughts and going off and being pure. We have to break it down into bite-sized chunks. Every time we want to look at that other person in a lustful way, every time we want to look at something online that is not good for us, every time we we get tired in the office and, and someone catches our eye, of going, Father, that's my old self. That's, that's what, that's what non-Christian me would have done. Lord, I know you're better. Please fill my mind with, with visions of how, how, so from the word of how beautiful you are. Please let me see your glory, taste your wonder, pursue you. Give me strength. And in that process, let me turn to what is good. Walking a different way home. If necessary, resigning and getting another job. Putting accountability software on my computer. Investing in real relationships rather than ones online. Help people to know that they are equipped for holiness. Help them to know who they are, not dirty and tainted, but but forgiven if they turn to Christ. And clean. Help them to keep going until that day of perfection that Revelation 21 talks about. But finally, what about if we're in a mess? Right here this evening, we're sitting here thinking the way I'm using my mind, the way I use my body, the the way I use my mouth, it is just not what God would like. God does care about it. Well, let's not just dwell on sin. There's a good chance that a, a fair dose of pain has led you to where you are now. Something is hurting. So pour out your heart in lament. Tell God how much it hurts. Tell God that you're lonely, that you're frustrated, that you're sad, that you're betrayed, that you're hurt, that that your past is still haunting you, that you, you can't seem to get images out of your head. Tell him what hurts. And then like the prodigal son, tell him what you've done wrong and say sorry. You don't have to stay in the pigsty. You can run back to your father who is running towards you with arms open, outstretched, going, welcome back. I love you. I'm so pleased you've come back. Acknowledge there is something better and pursue that something better. Keep going in a a life of repentance and faith and do that taking off and putting on day by day. And talk to someone you trust. If you feel able to, talk to someone this evening, although I realise that, you know, we're in a hall. It's not necessarily the best place for a private conversation, but please don't go home without sidling up to someone and going, can I call you later this week? You can pretend it's about sorting out the coffee rotor if you want to. But we are people designed for more. We're designed for beauty. We're designed for holiness. We're designed to reflect God in all the way we use our body and mind. We're called to covenant faithfulness with either one person of the opposite gender or just with the Lord himself. We're designed to run away from what is impure. We're designed to run towards beauty. And the world may not like it, but we will shine. And it will be glorious. And it will be good for those who need to hear that sex can be safe and lovely and enjoyable in the right context. And we can't do everything, even when I go over time in an evening like this. So here are a few things that you might like to do as follow-up before we have a bit of a Q&A. There are, there are some books there. Uh, Jason Roach's book is a very short book, um, which is always a win in my um, book world. 
a very short book on how to do love, sex and relationships. So accessible. He uh, was a church pastor. He's now trains missionaries. He used to be a doctor. It's a fantastic combo. Um, if you want a bigger book, uh, A Better Story uh, by Glyn Harrison, God, Sex and Human Flourishing. Fantastic read if you want something meaty uh, to get into on this topic. Purposeful Sexuality is written uh, largely with people uh, from a same-sex attracted uh, perspective uh, and just thinking, well, actually, if I, if I am a sexual being, but the Bible says I can't actually express that sexuality because I don't want to be with someone of the opposite gender, then what is my sexuality for? Again, it's a really short and accessible book. I'm not going to tell you everything, but it's a, a really good introduction into how God uses our sexuality even when we're not in a sexual relationship. Uh, my own little book for women, uh, well, largely for women, um, about pursuing purity if you're caught in a, a trap of fantasy or pornography use. And uh, Real Change is a six-week course to help people tackle some issue uh, that they're struggling with. But maybe more than books, talk to God, talk to a church leader, talk to someone that you trust. And if you just need a little bit of help online, Covenant Eyes or one of the other accountability softwares out there is well worth every penny. Well, we've learnt today that I'm passionate about Jesus and I can't tell the time. Uh, but Sam, I think we're going to do a, a short Q&A uh, if anyone would like to ask questions. Is that just a, a free-for-all in terms of... Yeah. It, it, it can be really hard to ask questions on a subject like this, I know. But please, uh, if you want to, feel free. Um, the chances are, if you're thinking about it, somebody else is too.